The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Several weeks ago, we began a study of the last nine chapters of this gospel. Does anybody remember what I said this last nine chapters are titled? It's called the book of... The first twelve chapters are called the book of signs. Remember that? What are the last nine called? The book of glory. And here's what I... Or if you don't remember that, just remember this, okay? Because this is important. The book of glory is addressed to who? Believers. His people, okay? And we're currently looking at what is called the Upper Room Discourse, which covers chapters 13 through 17. This discourse is not contained in the synoptics, and it represents four chapters of our Lord's teaching to His disciples. Now, it's not just the twelve. You know, many people say that's just there was just twelve in that room with them. No, there was more than twelve. There's many disciples in that Upper Room. And, and in this section, He's really teaching them about the subject of love. He's teaching about the love of, that He has for His own and how they are to love one another. This Upper Room Discourse is presented as the events and discussion of a single evening. Alright, this is going to take us a while to get through this Upper Room Discourse, okay? Because it's four chapters. And there's a lot of good stuff in here. And I kind of wanted to almost finish this chapter in one thing, but... As you see, we're only going to do three verses today because as I got in it, I said, there's just a lot of stuff here that needs to be covered. All right, so we're going to spend some time looking at this, but I want you to keep in mind, this is one night. This is the last night of the Lord's life. He's meeting with His disciples and He's teaching them these things. Okay, He's going over this. He's going to be arrested before the sun rises. He's going to be tried and He's going to be put to death the next day. Now, in the beginning of chapter 13, we see the Lord washing the disciples' feet. And we've, we've looked at that. And I just, let me hit on a few things about this before we get into our text for this morning. In that culture, Yeshua was the last person in the room who should have been washing the disciples' feet. It was the task of a slave. And do you remember what I said was the context of this foot washing? What does Luke tell us about what was going on right before the Lord washed their feet? They're sitting around Arguing with one another. <laughs> Arguing with one another. Who's the great? Hey, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Can you even imagine this? Now, I want you to keep in mind that these disciples were teenagers. Alright? They're teenagers. And so they're sitting there arguing with one another who's the greatest. Luke says in Luke 22-24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So during the Last Supper, the disciples are having this argument about which of them is the greatest in the kingdom. And while they're arguing and fighting with one another, the Lord gets up, He strips down the clothing of a slave, and He begins to wash their feet. The one who really is the greatest among them, their Lord, their Savior, Yahweh in human flesh, begins to wash their feet. That had to be a huge slap in the face to them. I mean, we're arguing about who's the greatest, and here is the greatest is humbly serving us. The disciples' human understanding of status and rights was being turned upside down. 
In the kingdom of God, roles are reversed and human understanding of status and rights are abolished. Or should be, let's say, in the kingdom of God. Now, during the foot washing, Peter refuses to let the Lord wash his feet. And the Lord responds to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, you remember what I said that means? Many commentators make it sound like if Yeshua didn't wash Peter's feet, Peter wouldn't be saved. He did not have eternal life. And I don't see that as what Yeshua is saying here. I see the term share as referring to communion or fellowship. So Yeshua is saying, Peter, it's necessary necessary for me to wash your feet in order for you to have communion with me. So Peter responds in true Peter fashion, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. To which Yeshua responds, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet. In other words, you've already been cleansed. You don't need another bath, Peter. You just need to wash your feet. He's completely clean and you are clean. But, he says, not every one of you. Now, in 13.8, the word wash is the Greek word nipto, which means to wash parts of the body. Like, if I was going to wash my hands, I'd say I'm going to go nipto my hands. I'm going to wash my hands. But the word bathe in 13.10 is luo, and it means to bathe all over. Like, I'm going to go take a shower, I'm going to go wash my hands. Very different, alright? So Yeshua is saying, the one who has been bathed all over only needs to wash his feet. So in this text, Yeshua is talking to his disciples. And he tells them that they're clean, meaning they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They are believers. But he tells these believers that they need to have their feet washed. In other words, he's saying you need, as believers, you need to deal with sin in your life to stay in fellowship with me. And I believe what he is telling them is applicable for us today. If we've trusted Christ, we're saved. We've had a spiritual bath. But, despite what some people might say today, we still sin. Okay? We still sin. And as we walk through this life, we get our feet dirty. And we need them washed in order to stay in fellowship with the Lord. And I see this foot washing as performed by the Word of God. As believers continue in the Word. As they read the Word. As they study the Word. As they memorize it. We are cleansed because it shows us who we are. It shows us our need of confession. It shows us our sin and we confess it and we forsake it. I don't understand personally, my opinion, I don't understand how a believer, any believer, can walk in fellowship with the Lord without spending time in the Word of God. I don't know how you do that. How do you fellowship with somebody that you don't spend time with? It's important to be in the Word of God. We'll see this later in in the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Set him apart by your truth. Your word is truth, and we need to spend time in it. Well, Yeshua's interpretation of the foot washing is in verses 12 through 17. He does give them an example, and he explains it. And it really focuses on the reversal of values that come with the kingdom of God. People, we have to understand that the values in the kingdom of God are radically different than the values of the world in which we live. 
In verse 14b and 15, he says, You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Now, I don't believe, and some people argue this, I don't believe that Yeshua is saying that from now on, for all time, Christians have to take a time when they wash each other's feet. That's not a big deal. And if you want to do that, you go right ahead. But I think what the Lord is saying here, you need to sacrificially minister to the needs of one another. So you tell me what's harder. Sacrificially ministering to the needs of other people or having a service once a month where we wash each other's feet. What he is saying is that all Christians... Got to plug this thing in. (laughs) What the Lord is saying here is not that we need to wash one another's feet. What He's saying is that all Christians should humbly be serving each other. We need to be meeting the needs of each other. See, what He did by washing their feet, that was a need they had. They're, They're eating together and their feet are right there. You know, they're not sitting at a table like we are, so their feet are there. Their feet need to be washed. It was a need, and he's meeting a need that was normally done by a slave. Now, Yeshua's attitude toward the disciples and to us in these verses is, listen, you want to pursue greatness? Because they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. You want to pursue greatness? By all means, do it. Just understand the rules. Know what the criteria is for being great. Greatness is determined by the person who puts everyone before himself and takes on the role of a servant. You guys want to be great? You want to argue who's the greatest? That's good. Be the greatest. Because once you get that criteria down, go out and pursue it with all you've got. Pursue greatness with all your heart. Be the servant of all you can be. Believers, we need to see in this text that our Lord is turning social values upside down. The secular world looks upon leadership as the opportunity to be served. Right? A leader has many people under him. And thus he uses them to minister to his own needs. But in the kingdom of God, a position of leadership is simply a place of service. That's all it is. The Christian is to serve God by serving others. And then the Lord says in verse 17, after He tells them this, He says, if you know these things... You're blessed by knowing Him. No, that's not what He says. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. you got to do them. So I ask you, does anybody want to be blessed by God? Anybody care about that? Well, Yeshua promises God's blessing on those who practice humble service. We are called to follow Christ's example and love sacrificially, love humbly, and the most menial Simple necessities of life. And love at the lowest level of need. Somebody has a need, you say, well, I I don't do that. That's below me. No, nothing is below you. And that was the point here. The Lord, the greatest of all, became the servant of all and washed their feet. Now look at the next verse. This is We're getting into new territory now. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. What does he mean by that? 
Well, remember what I said about the book of glory just a little bit ago? It wasn't that long ago, so you probably still should remember, right? The book of glory is addressed to those who have believed. So who is it that's not a believer that Yeshua is not speaking to here? It's Judas. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. Why? Look at verse 11 of chapter 13. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. The you here is plural, referring to all the disciples except for Judas. Yeshua is telling them, the disciples, you guys are clean. You're saved. But not all of you, because Judas was there. So in verse 18, when Yeshua says, I'm not speaking to all of you, he's excluding Judas. Judas was an unbeliever, so he's not going to be blessed by humbly serving others. Because that's something only God's people can do. Because there's no true humility without doing it for the Lord. Not to gain favor, not for anything else. So, you know, I'm not speaking to all of you. You're not all going to be blessed because Judas, you're not going to get in on this because you're just not a believer. And then he says, I know whom I've chosen. Now, many see this as a reference to Yeshua choosing Judas to apostleship. But I see Yeshua as addressing His elect here. He wasn't speaking to all of them because Judas was there. He was only speaking to His chosen ones. One commentator writes this, When Christ said, I know whom I have chosen, it is evident that He was not speaking of election to salvation. It's really not that evident to me. But to the apostolate, where eternal election is in view, the Scriptures uniformly ascribe it to God the Father. Now see, a lot of people use that argument. They say, well, it's only talking about the Father when it talks about election, but didn't Yeshua say, I and the Father are one? So I don't think that's all that great of an argument. You know, Another argument that they use is when uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 70, it says, Yeshua answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Now there's no doubt that Yeshua chose Judas to be an apostle. Okay? That's clear. But I don't think that's what he's saying in 1318. I agree with the Faith Life Study Bible that commenting on this, I know whom I have chosen, says this. Jesus is referring to all His disciples who are present, but not Judas. I know whom I have chosen, and Judas isn't one of them, so he doesn't get blessed. It doesn't apply to all of them. His words only apply to the people He has chosen, to true believers. Now, the inference is that some among them whom He had not chosen, they're not going to be blessed by doing these things because they're not a believer. They're not. They haven't trusted Christ. Then He says this, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. So what Yeshua is saying doesn't apply to all of them because, again, Judas is an unbeliever. But the fact that there was an unbeliever in their midst was not an accident. It was in fact a fulfillment of Scripture. And that's why he says, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. See, the Scriptures foretold that Judas would be the one to betray the Lord. And when we read that the Scripture foretold this, I think, I hope you understand that there is no knowing here that's not foreseen. In other words, if he knew, if there's foreordination here, if the Scriptures are going to be fulfilled, that's foreordination. 
And you don't foresee unless there's foreordination. It's planned out ahead of time. No one can know anything that is not foreordained. And so Judas' act, listen, is a foreordained act. It was prophesied, so could it not happen? Could the Lord prophesy that, hey, this is going to happen, Judas is going to do this, and then Judas not do it? What about his free will? Couldn't he decide, I don't want to fulfill prophecy. Can prophecy fail? No, it cannot. If God prophesied it, it would happen. So what our text is telling us is that in the Tanakh, it actually speaks of Judas. Now, we don't see his name in the Tanakh, but it does speak of him. And the only way we know that it speaks of him is because Yeshua and Peter both told us that it does. After the Lord was crucified and then raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, Peter says in effect, now that Judas is gone, we need to select another apostle to take his place. And then he cites the text which says, Acts 1.20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, he's quoting from Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. All right, now the first part of verse 20 here was prophesied in Psalm 69.25. To say the camp of Judas would be desolate is the same as saying he would be removed, he would drop out. All right? And then it says, let another take his office. Now the second part of verse 20 comes from Psalm 109, verse 8, which says that Judas' office or his position would be fulfilled by somebody else. By quoting those two psalms, Peter reassured his fellow disciples that, Jewish depart, that Judas's departure fulfilled prophecy. It wasn't an accident that circumvented the plan of God. Can you imagine those disciples and they're saying, well, we got this guy, he's been with us for all this time and now he's forsaken us. What, what's happening here? What's happening to the plan of God? Peter says, hey, it's just prophecy is being fulfilled. The plan of God is going forward. This is what God planned. So Peter tells us that Psalm 109.8 is a text that was written by David concerning Judas. Now, I don't think David knew that. Now, you're going to not find Judas' name in that Psalm 109. You can go back and read it, and you're not going to find it, his name there. No matter how many times you read it, no matter what language you read it in. But Judas is there, alright? Because Peter tells us he's there. If you read this psalm, you're going to see that it's a psalm that has some of the worst things to say about a man that you could possibly say. Yet it's written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what David says about the person that in this psalm he calls his adversary. He begins the psalm by speaking about a single adversary, and then around the sixth verse he switches to adversaries. No, I think I got that upside down. Yeah, he starts out by speaking of plural adversaries, and then from 6 he starts to focus in on a single adversary. Look at, look at some of the things that David writes about a person, and how would you like someone to say this about you? He says, appoint a wicked man against him. Let's get some wicked person to go against this. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried... Let him come forth guilty. Let's get some wicked people to say some things about him and, and, and make him be guilty for this, all right? 
Let his prayer be counted as sin. Oh, that's not too nice, is it? May his days be few. May another man take his office. Now, that's the verse that Peter quotes. That's the line right there. Now, watch what he goes on to say. May his children be fatherless. Not too nice. May his wife be a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food from the ruins they inhabit. Do you get the point? That's not very nice. This is what's called an imprecatory psalm. Apart from Peter telling us that this is about Judas, we'd never get that. This psalm is not written directly about Judas. It's written about him typically. So Peter says that Psalm 109.8 is about Judas, and Yeshua says that Psalm 41.9 is about Judas. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is another psalm of David. Now, commenting on this psalm, the Pillar New Testament commentary says this, By no stretch of the imagination can the entire psalm rightly be labeled messianic. For it includes lines such as these, O Lord, have mercy upon me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now, we know the Lord can't say that, so that can't be talking about Him. The basis for seeing in this psalm a prophecy which is fulfilled in Jesus does not depend on designating the entire psalm messianic, but on two other features. First, because 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, and Psalm 2 and other passages, David himself became a type, a model of great David's greater son, the promised Messiah. This did not mean that everything that happened to David is to find its echo in Yeshua, Jesus. So, so David was a clear picture of our Lord. He was the king from whom the Lord Yeshua would come. He was the Lord's ancestor. He was the one whom the historical David and the Lord Yeshua comes along as the true greater David. They were related. David, a messianic figure. Our Lord, the, the messianic figure. So David was a type of Christ. He illustrated him. Now, if David is a type of our Lord, then David's adversaries are also illustrative of the Lord's adversaries. That's the picture here. So, who is David's adversary? Who's David talking about in these Psalms that he does not like at all and he wishes you know, that their wife would be a widow and their children would be fatherless and the children would run around begging? Who's he saying this about? Anybody got a guess? No? It seems that David is referring to Ahithophel in this psalm. Now, Ahithophel is an interesting man. He was a man who was close to Absalom, David's son, and close to David. You remember that Absalom rebelled against his father and sought to carry out a revolution against him, a coup, if you would. And he and Ahithophel combined to do this. Ahithophel was working with him. Now look at 2 Samuel 15.31. And he was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. See, Ahithophel was very close to David. In fact, the Tanakh, it says that the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was if a man inquired of the oracle of God. 
So David felt free to go to Ahithophel to discuss his affairs with him. And yet this individual is one who conspired with Absalom to revolt against the man who had been his benefactor and at whose table he had sat and ate food. He was a close friend. And he turned against him. Does anybody remember how Ahithophel died? Ahithophel, Judas is a type of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is the only person in the Tanakh, as far as I know, that consciously went out and hanged himself. Other people were hung, but he hung himself. And we know that Judas in the New Testament is a parallel as he hung himself. So that's just interesting. You look at these adversaries and you, know, you see the adversary, you see the type fitting together there. Ahithophel becomes an illustration, a type of Judas. He hangs himself. Judas will do the same. And we also see Judas clearly depicted in Zechariah's prophecy. In Zechariah 11, 12-13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then Yahweh said to me, Throw it to the potter the lordy price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of Yahweh to the potter. This is exactly what Judas did. He betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Then he became guilty over it and he took the 30 pieces of silver back and he threw them down on the temple floor. And so they went out and they took that money and they purchased the potter field fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah completely. Now listen to what Yeshua prays in His high priestly prayer in John 17. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, this is Judas He's talking about. Everything that Judas did was planned of God. His rebellion, his apostasy, his hypocrisy, all were part of God's divine purpose. He wants them to understand this. This betrayal is not some accident. It's not ruining the plan. Listen, there are many prophecies in the Tanakh that we don't even recognize as such until they've been fulfilled. Until the New Testament tells us, guess what? This is a fulfillment of that. Just like this prophecy concerning Judas. If we read these Psalms, we wouldn't get Judas out of them without the New Testament. But here's the thing I want you to understand here that to me is so important in this text. Prophecy reminds us that God is in control of every event of Judas' betrayal and every event of every circumstance. God is in control. And here's what we need to understand. Fulfilled prophecy, such as we see in our text with Judas, is an undeniable proof of the inspiration of the Bible. There's no other book in the world that contains the kind of specific prophecies found all throughout the pages of Scripture. There's no comparison, for example, between the oracles of Nostradamus and the prophecies of the Tanakh about Yeshua. The prophecies in the Tanakh are often so obvious that many secular scholars have unsuccessfully attempted to assign later dates to the prophecies 
so they can be fulfilled, you know, they can be made after the time they've already been fulfilled. That's how stunning some of this stuff is. They just can't buy it that, the, that this could actually happen because it demonstrates the deity of the Lord. Now, get this. There are over 300 prophecies. Over 300 that were literally fulfilled in Yeshua's first coming. 300. What are the chances that so many prophecies could all come true in the life of one man? Well, Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, says this. The probability that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled just eight of the 300, just eight of them, is 1 to 10 to the 17th power. That's a 1 with 17 zeros after it. That would look like this. Now, okay, you say, wow, that's a big number, but, you know, I mean, let me try to put this together the way Stoner does to help you understand this, okay? One, you know, 1 in 10 to the 17th power, that's a lot, but think of it this way. Comprehend it this way. He says, imagine taking this number of silver dollars. All right? So you got these silver dollars, and you take them, and you lay them out on the face of Texas. Okay? Listen to this. These silver dollars will cover the entire state two feet deep. Texas is a big state. Okay? Measuring from west to east, it's about 800 miles. Measuring from south to north, it's about 800 miles. Okay? That is, if you've ever driven through Texas, you know you just like, you're never getting out of it. Okay? It's a big state. Okay? So take these silver dollars two feet deep, that whole area. Two feet deep. Then mark one silver dollar. Just take one and mark it. Put a mark on it or color it a different color or whatever. And then take that to the pile and stir the pile up. I don't know how you'd ever stir that pile up. Okay. Okay. Then you blindfold somebody and you put them at the edge of Texas somewhere and you say, okay, go ahead, walk into Texas far as you want. Walk 400 miles, get to the middle if you want. Whatever you want. And bend over and pick up a silver dollar. The marked silver dollar. The chance of that happening is the same as the chance of Eight, just eight messianic prophecies coming true in any one man. Hopefully that visual illustration helps you grasp this. Two feet deep. If you took this room two feet deep, can you imagine just coming in here and trying to... What are the chances? But Texas? Put that silver dollar in the middle. No one's even going to walk 400 miles you know, before they get tired and try to pick something up. So Stoner goes on to evaluate the chance of 48 of the prophecies being fulfilled by chance, and the odds there had a 1 with 157 zeros after it. And remember, that's just 48 of the 300. And that's why one researcher writes this, God designed fulfilled prophecy to be an open demonstration of the divine origin of the Scriptures. People, This book that we have, that God has given us, is a living, breathing Word of God. The evidence is undeniable. And that being the case, 
Shouldn't we be spending more time in it? It is the beginning of another year. I mean, have you made a commitment to actually spend some time in the Word of God this year? You know, as I said, Mike on, on our Facebook brand's Facebook page is doing a, a devotion every day and you know, listing the scriptures that you're supposed to read and a brief devotion of it. But we have lists on the website of you know, a plan that will take you through the whole Bible in a year. It's the Word of God. God has spoken, and what He has said is recorded in this book. All we got to do is pick it up and read it. All right. Our text goes, <laughs> and John goes on to say this. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, as we said, in Psalm 41.9, this is speaking of Ahithophel who betrays David. But Yeshua says, this is speaking of Judas. Ahithophel was a type of Judas. David cried out to Yahweh that even my trusted friend on whom I have relied, who has eaten bread at my table, has betrayed me. Now, to lift one's heel against someone is a Semitic expression for violence or betrayal. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible says this. People viewed table fellowship, he's talking about people in that culture, as establishing a covenant of friendship. Now, you know, we eat with people and we don't think anything about it, but he's saying when they sat down to eat together, Having a meal together was a covenant of friendship. He says, betrayal of such a bond was considered heinous. And he says, for a stark example, in one ancient epic, two warriors, discovering that their fathers had shared table fellowship a generation earlier, realized they could not fight each other. That shows you the importance of you know, the ancient Near Eastern culture inviting a man into one's home and at one's table was a very significant act. To eat bread at the table of one's Lord was in effect to give a pledge of loyalty. We see this in 2 Samuel 9.7. And David said to him, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Who's David talking to here? Who? What's his name? Mephibosheth. Yeah, Mephibosheth. That's who he's talking to here. That's what he's talking about. And he says, you can eat at my table. I'm making a covenant with you to take care of you. To betray someone whom bread has been broken with was a breach of tr- the tradition of hospitality. So Yeshua in our text is saying, in effect, that treachery is going to come so that the prophecy in Scripture will be fulfilled. He knows, listen, He knows Judas is a traitor. He's always known that. He chose Him knowing that. Choosing Judas to be an apostle was no mistake. As a matter of fact, it's specifically stated in Scripture that Yeshua prayed all night before He chose the twelve. He chose Judas in order that he would betray him so Scripture would be fulfilled. This is part of the plan of God. But he says to his disciples, I'm telling you this now. Tonight, I'm telling you this. Before this takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. See, Yeshua knew that once Judas betrayed him, 
It's going to cause the disciples all kinds of grief and questioning. How could he be God's son and not know we had a traitor in our midst the whole time? How could he be the one with all knowledge and allow this betrayer to be in our midst? So he prepared his disciples in advance for he knew it was going to happen. After Christ's resurrection, when they reflected on Yeshua's prediction of the betrayal, the disciples would come to see he was in complete control of the situation. As only, listen, he was in complete control as only God could be. And that's why Yeshua said, you may believe that I am. I'm telling you this, disciples, I'm telling you this right now. It's not taking place yet before it takes place. So when it takes place, you know what you're going to know? You're God. I'm God. You're going to believe that I'm God because I'm controlling the events that are happening. Now, there is no he at the end of this text. Most translations, if you look at your Bible, put the he in italics. I'm not sure why the ESV doesn't put it in italics here. I am here is the phrase ego eimi. Now, some say that ego eimi is just a normal way of identifying oneself, of saying it's me. And it can be taken that way. But in this gospel, Lazarus uses this expression to make it clear that Yeshua is Yahweh. He's going out of his way to make sure we understand that. This is Yeshua's fourth I am statement without the predicate nominative. He makes seven I am statements with the predicate nominative. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the door. You know, He used seven of those, but this is the fourth one without the predicate nominative. He is claiming to be I am. He is basically asserting equality with Yahweh, who has revealed himself as I am that I am. We're all familiar with Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, because Moses says, hey, who should I tell them is going to you know, send me? Then they're going to wonder. And he says, tell them I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, I am who I am in Hebrew is ehiyah esher ehiyah. And it means I am that which exists. The root of ehiyah is haya, which means to be or I exist. So Elohim tells Moses his name is Ehiah. But look at the next verse. God also, Elohim, also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What's his name forever? Yahweh. Elohim again gives his name to Moses, but this time it is Yahweh. And that's because these two names, Yahweh and Ehiah, are related. Yahweh is, Ehiah is. Ehiah means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means he exists, he will exist, he is. And both of these names are related to each other. They are both conveying the idea that Yahweh is the existing one. Now the prophets guided by the Holy Spirit, picked up on this phrase, and they use it. Isaiah particularly, several times he speaks about God, who has called to him, and he uses this title, I Am. Look at Isaiah 41.4. People, listen. Follow, me, follow with me on this, because this is very important. Because I want you to understand that one thing that Lazarus is trying to get us to comprehend 
is that Yeshua is Yahweh. He is God in human flesh. He says, who has performed and done this, calling the generation from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am He. Now, in the original Hebrew, Yahweh discloses Himself in the repeated declaration, I am He. Is this expression that the Septuagint consistently renders by ego a me, formerly I am. Isaiah 43.10 is especially close to what scholars call Johannian language. And it says, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. The Greek Tanakh contains the purpose clause in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am. Ego me. Now the last part of 43.10 seems to be based on Exodus 3.14. The unique and here important part of Isaiah 43 comes in verse 11 where the speaker says, I, I am Yahweh and besides me there is no Savior. So we get that right. The Savior is who? Yahweh. No Savior besides Yahweh. And yet, what does Yeshua constantly claim to be? The Savior. In John 8.24, Yeshua says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So, Yeshua is claiming to be the Savior. But Yahweh says He's the Savior. Yeshua is saying, I'm Yahweh. There's no Savior besides me. Verse 12 goes on. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declare Yahweh, and I am God. Now the point of Isaiah 43, 10-12 is that I am is a God of salvation. In Isaiah, the context demands that I am He means I am the same. I am forever the same. I am even Yahweh with a direct allusion to Exodus 3.14. Now, for others to apply this title themselves was blasphemous. And the Jews saw that. That's why they wanted to kill him, all right? It was an invitation to face the wrath of God. For example, look at Isaiah 47, 8. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Now, verse 11 tells us what happens to the one who claims to be I am that's not. Isaiah 47, 11. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall on you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Now, for Yeshua to apply such words to himself is to say, I'm Yahweh, I'm the only Savior. He's claiming to be the eternal God. Listen to me, people. Yeshua is Yahweh. I get questioned on this all the time by people. Are you saying that Jesus is God? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how else to say it. That's what the Bible says, okay? And people say, are you saying Yeshua is the Father? No. He's the Son. All three members are God. But Yeshua is God in human flesh. 
To deny the deity of Christ is to not deny that He is in fact Yahweh in the flesh. That is to die in your sins according to Yeshua. Now if that's too strong for you, I'm sorry, but that's what He said. Again, John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am. In other words, unless you believe that I'm God, unless you believe that I'm Yahweh, you will die in your sins. He's demonstrated that the whole time. That's the whole thing of John. He's trying to show us. This is God in human flesh. God walking among us. When you see Him, you see the Father. Yeshua was saying that His knowledge and His authority over the betrayal of Judas is evidence of His deity. I'm telling you guys this now. Before it happens. Because when it happens, you're going to look back and say, He's God. He knows everything. He knows what's happening. I'm telling you now before it takes place. They will believe in His deity because this revelation demonstrates the superhuman knowledge as well as the fulfilling of the prophecy of Isaiah 41.9. It's being fulfilled. God had planned this out. What Judas did hurt them. But it was planned. Verse 20. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent. Now, Yeshua is telling His disciples, when I send you and someone receives you, they're receiving me. You're my representative. And when they receive me, they receive the Father. Because He sent me. Now, the emissary or the ambassador represents the king in every way. In his authority, his words he speaks. In like manner, whoever receives them receives Christ. And whoever receives Christ receives God the Father who sent Him. Now I think he's telling his disciples this here because he wants them to know that even with his incredible devastating betrayal of Judas, even with his massive defection, the integrity of their commission is not compromised. Listen, you guys are still my representatives. He was. We knew this was going to happen. Don't think it hurts your status. Okay, you're still representing me. You're to go out there and do that. In this text, Yeshua is reassuring His disciples that He is Yahweh and He's in control. What is about to happen with Judas? It was prophesied long ago. Everything is going according to plan. That's what He's trying to convince these guys this night. They're going to have a bad day. And I want to convince you, everything's going according to plan. And let me say this, it was then, it still is now. Okay? And I wish we could understand this. When things happen in our life, everything is going according to plan. We have no control of the circumstances that come and go in our lives. For the most part, we do have a great control of how we respond to them. When we understand He's in control, our response is simply to trust Him. That's what God wants from us. Will you trust me? Will you trust me in the affairs of life? Whatever is happening, will you learn that I'm in control and will you trust me? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, it must have been so difficult for these disciples to dwell with Judas all that time to have no clue whatsoever that he was not a believer, that he was a betrayer. It must have really thrown them when this happened. But as You taught them ahead of time to strengthen, to encourage them to realize that You are in control. It was prophesied Oh, Father, help us to realize that 
prophecy is so clearly your signature that this book comes from your hand. Father, I pray we'd learn to treat this truly as the Word of God. That it would take importance in our life. The importance we give to this book would be demonstrated by the time we spend in it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Thank you.